All right, good morning, Sedaris. Um, my name is Christy, for those of you who don't know me. Um, but if you were here last week, um, you saw that we are kind of doing something different before the service starts, um, before our time of teaching, which is reading through the psalm that we'll be going through. So um, yeah, if you could grab a Bible um, and turn with me to Psalm 105. All right, Psalm 105. Tell of all his wondrous works. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are all are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of a little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked the kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful, and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with their servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them, and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there were none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might 
keep his statutes and observe his his laws. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Sedaris Church. Let's give a big round of applause to Christy. That was 45 verses. That was great. And then maybe another to, to the other Christy who did announcements with a baby. I mean, come on. Come on. I mean, that was, that, that's, that's my daughter, and she is busy, you know? She is, she's a go-getter. So um, thanks for being here, guys. Um, and as we open up to Psalm 105 today, um, it really is a natural progression of what we're doing here this summer at Sedaris, which is to dive into the Psalms. We're diving into the book of Psalms. Each summer we do this, actually, here at Sedaris. This will be the seventh summer that we've leaned into uh, the Psalms together, and uh, we select a handful to unpack together. But this year, we come to the Psalms um, at a unique time, uh, at a unique moment, with two big influencers kind of in mind as we walk into Psalms this year. Um, the, the first um, really is our previous sermon series in the book of Exodus. You probably noticed as Christy read this that a lot of this psalm actually has to do with the book of Exodus. Uh, we spent the first half of the year in the book of, in the book of Exodus. Uh, but then the second thing that's kind of influencing us as we look at these psalms this year is... Um, the condition of our souls after about a year and a half of coronavirus pandemic life, okay? So we're looking in these, uh, in these psalms with both of these in mind, uh, because in the Exodus account, what we see is God powerfully delivered his people out of Egypt uh, by way of those 10 plagues that are, most of them are listed here in parting of the Red Sea, but he did all of that, we said in our sermon series. He was moving Israel out of Egypt so that he could move them into something else. And at the very end of the book of Exodus, what we find is God's plan all, all along was for him to move in with them. So God wanted to be their roommate, and he said, Egypt's not your roommate anymore. I'm going to be your roommate. And at the very end of the Exodus, you kind of have this, this rising action that climaxes in God's glory coming down from heaven and filling this strange tabernacle that he asked them to construct that we really don't quite understand. And Pastor Ben actually led us through teaching of how we can really wrap our heads around the tabernacle nowadays. He did a great job in that. Um, but so God comes and he fills the, the tabernacle. His presence, his full glory comes to dwell there. And, uh, and so we saw that in the Exodus account. We see that God is eager to be with his people. That's what Exodus really tells us at the very end. I'm eager to be with my people. I moved them out of Egypt so I can move in with them. 2,000 years ago, God's eagerness brought Jesus to earth. And then nowadays, we see that God's eagerness comes into all Christians through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And, and while God's eagerness and his presence with us is like a very incredible truth, we also find that it's one that Christians, and perhaps even especially Christians, we're, we're prone to wrestle with it, we're prone to doubt it, we're prone to even forget that God's presence is within us. And we really rolled up our sleeves and unpacked that last week. Um, and it's actually probably never more true than a year and a half of uh, the coronavirus pandemic, where, where many of us have strayed from leaning into our relationship with God, where, where we've stopped communing with him and perhaps even feel like when we try, it doesn't go anywhere. We just feel like we're just screaming into the, 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 the darkness. Where are you, God? Where are you? And, and so, um, if the presence of God is this great Christian hope on the one hand, but yet something that we really fail to lean into and experience for ourselves, where should we go? And the answer is the Psalms. 
the Psalms. The Psalms uh, are, it's 150 kind of prayers that are actually written in poetry that were set to music and sung by congregations across all of Israel. Uh, David wrote about half of them. You have 20 or 30 other authors of individual Psalms here. And, and we go to the Psalms here because, uh, and we're going, we're unpacking Psalms together that are really going to lean into this notion of the presence of God. If God says he's, he's going to come and be with people and uh, what is that, and we're not experiencing it, what does that look like? How can we take steps towards actually experiencing that in our lives? So we've pulled together a handful of Psalms that are going to center on the presence of God and how humans can participate with it. Uh, because even though there's differences in time, there's differences in culture, there's even differences in theology, right? Like the Holy Spirit didn't come and dwell within these authors like he does Christians today. Even though the Holy Spirit came upon them and inspired their writing of the scriptures, they, they, they relate to God in a slightly different ways. But even though there's the, the way that they step into the presence of God, there are some very significant and practical handles that are exactly the same. They're exactly the same. And we saw last week as we looked very briefly at Psalm chapter 1, they said, you know what? If you want to tap into the life of God's presence, meditate on his word and pray. So reading the Bible and praying, that's a big way to lean into it. And that's what Psalm 1, the introduction, tells us. And so um, as we hope, to, we hope to continue leaning into and finding more ways this week, and we keep in, keeping in mind that these psalmists, they're not just telling us theology. They're not just giving us facts about God. Uh, they're, they're poetry. They're actually telling us how their heart responds to those facts of who God is. And, and as we lean into and learn from them, they're going to tell us how they, they sent their roots down deep to tap into living water that gave them life coming from the presence of God. And, and first... What I want to do this week is just admit that it's okay to say that we need help with this. This isn't something that, that anyone has really mastered in some huge, significant way because all of us need help with this at several points in our lives. And so there's no reason to get defensive when we, we start evaluating, oh shoot, what's my relationship with God about? I want us to take our walls down um, because it's completely okay for a couple reasons and the very obvious reasons. And the first one is, Having a relationship with someone that you can't see or touch is mysterious. Let's just state the obvious here. You can't see God, you can't touch God, and you're supposed to have a relationship with God. That's the only relationship that you're, that's going to be only spiritual that you're going to have in your entire life, okay? So this is something that, that we only get with God, and so it's a little bit mysterious as to how it works, and there's going to be some speed bumps along the road in trying to figure it out. And, and the second reason why we need help and why this is particularly difficult, because the more complex a person is, the more difficult it is to have a relationship with that person. So if you think of a newborn, it's very easy to have a relationship with a newborn. They're not complex at all. They need food, they need sleep, they need their diaper changed. And voila, you can have a great relationship with a newborn, you know? You're gonna wake up a lot, but it's gonna be great, okay? But as, you, um, as that child grows, a young child becomes a little more complex than a newborn, and then your relationship becomes a little more challenging, a little more complex as a result. And even some kids are more complex than other kids, and so it's more difficult to have relationships with some kids than others. Now extrapolate all the way up to adults. 
Some, hum- some like adult humans are more complex than other humans, and they're just a little bit harder to relate with. Now, also take in mind that usually if, if two humans are complex in the same ways, though, they can usually relate really well to one another, even though everyone else is like, we don't get those guys at all. What's going on there? You know? Now, God, he's infinitely complex and nothing like us. He's holy is what the scriptures tell us. He's set aside. He's something else. He's something other. So he's infinitely complex and nothing like this. And so it's going to be very difficult and complex to have a relationship with this complex, nuanced being that is completely other. And so let's just admit it that leaning into this a relationship with an infinite, complex other being, it, it's going to be difficult. It's going to have speed bumps. It's going to take a little bit of work. And so as we come to Psalm 105 today, we're coming here intentionally because as we find ourselves stuck relating to this God, it gives us a place to start. You can always come back to Psalm 105 to start over again. You can always come back here to to lean into the presence of God and even experience it right away. If if your relationship with God ever needs a jump start, Psalm 105 is going to tell us what to do. So let's uh, get into it. And if you were actually to look at the first couple verses in Psalm 105 and try to answer the question of, how do I have a relationship with God? You would conclude, well, just by doing it. Just by doing it. There's just, these first four verses are just a bunch of commands. Have a relationship with God is essentially what it says. (laughs) Just by doing it. But, But we shouldn't think that this introduction is the place to start. Um, because it's actually the conclusion of the matter. It's actually the the conclusion that David has come to. This psalm is not trying to tell us to improve our relationship with God by just white-knuckling it, okay? It's actually the conclusion of of an entire process that we see happen through the course of the psalm. And many, many psalms work this way, actually. So just a tip for your own reading. Oftentimes, you come into a psalm, and, and there's a whole bunch of commands up front. And it's like, geez, this is kind of intense, but it's just a deductive psalm. Usually, it is the conclusion of the matter that the psalmist has wrestled with, and they're going to bring you into that wrestle throughout the rest of the psalm. But, but let's look at the conclusion so we can see what this end product is, uh, because then hopefully it can inspire us to lean into the rest of what the psalmist is calling us to. David says, give thanks to God. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Peoples, that's the Hebrew word am. Uh, and whenever this Hebrew word am is used, it's used to people who aren't Hebrew. So he's saying, make known uh, the, 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 the great acts of God to people who aren't Hebrews. Um, tell them about the things that God has done. And then he says, glory in his holy name or boast in God. So, so go beyond telling them what God did to actually saying, uh, extrapolate it. This is who this God must be as a result. Glory in his name. And, and then he says, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Let their hearts rejoice. This is a really beautiful kind of statement. Uh, David's kind of picturing a heart that's kind of been burdened by something. Maybe it's like hardships or difficulties or whatever, and he's saying, no, let the heart rejoice. There's things holding your heart and other people's hearts back from rejoicing. Let your heart, it wants to rejoice. Let it rejoice. Don't let it, don't let your heart be shackled by momentary hard circumstances. And then seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence. 
And like we learned last week, that word uh, presence there comes from the Hebrew word pani, which means face. In fact, if you're reading along in the NIV or the CSB, they'll just translate it for you, face. That's how the Hebrews would talk about being in the very presence of God, which is to say, seek a relationship with him. How often? Continually. All the time. Every day. Every hour. Seek God's face. Now, this, this description, these first four verses, it really describes uh, someone who's passionately pursuing a relationship with God. Have you ever experienced this? Uh, oftentimes, this will be um, our experience of God when we first become a Christian. Uh, maybe you can think and hold that in your mind. Go back there. of When, when you're really all about leaning into uh, God and praying, you're reading your Bible, you're telling other people about him, you're, you're rejoicing even though things are still difficult in your life. Have you ever experienced a season like that? Well, David did, and he wrote this psalm. And then, this is in 1 Chronicles 16, this psalm is the the, the song that he decreed all of Israel to sing on the day, the first day, they brought the Ark of of Israel into Jerusalem. They said, sing this song. Sing this song. And it was likely the song that they would sing every year, commemorating the time they brought the Ark in to Israel. And the question is, how did David get there? How did he get to this incredible experience where he's so obsessed with the presence of God? He's so thankful. He's so rejoicing. This kind of represents David probably at one of his most healthy parts in his walk, you could say, his relationship with God. And verse 5 begins to tell us. Verse 5 begins to tell us. Because you see, each statement in the opening first in the first opening four verses, it starts with a verb, right? And then it's clarified by another verb similar to it, okay? And so this is called Hebrew parallelism. They would say a statement, and then they would mimic that statement with something right below it that would provide further explanation and nuance to what was happening right above it. And so that happens at one, two, three, four. There's a pair of verses in each one of these, except in verse five. In verse five, you, you have this, remember the wondrous works that he, uh, that he has done, And then where you you would expect a verb, it's not there. His miracles and the judgments he uttered, O offspring of Abraham. This is where David, this is how poetry uh, brings attention to certain things. He's lengthened out this single verb because he wants us to focus on this remember. Remember. This is where he wants to draw your attention. Because David's intense pursuit of God, his, his thankfulness, his boasting as God, his, his telling people all about God, it started here with this word, remember. And that's what this psalm is all about. As Christy read it, you, you, were probably, you probably noticed, this is all about remembering everything that God had done for Israel. Remembrance. Remembrance. And this act of remembrance is altogether alien to a culture that distracts itself screens all day. We can't really get it. And so I hope that we can lean into this remembrance that we see happening here in Psalm 105, that we too might be able to lean into it, and it might begin to produce these fruits that David experienced in his lives. They're altogether beautiful. We have have memories of them happening in our lives, and we wish they could happen again. This is how it happens. So first, I'm going to start with a few things that remembrance is not, okay? What, what, what remembrance is not. The first thing that, re- that remembrance isn't is it's not thankfulness. It's not thankfulness. Uh, now, thankfulness is a fruit of remembrance. It's all the way up there in verse 1. 
But remembrance itself is not thankfulness. Um, he's not going through each line and thanking God for everything, each ad- item that he's done. He could do that, but, but, but remembrance is different from thankfulness. You, you, you would say that remembrance actually precedes thankfulness. The second thing is it's not accidental. David's remembrance and, and remembrance as a, as a subject, it's never accidental. It, it's not a, an experience that you will find yourself accidentally doing one day. It, the, Remembrance, as we're going to see here, it's an activity that's purposely engaged. It's purposely engaged, meaning, meaning time has been set aside and phones have been set aside to accomplish a particular purpose. We, we, we can't just expect to happen upon it. So, so this psalm is all about remembrance. Um, in verses 12 through 41, we see all that David is remembering. He's remembering all that God has done for his people. He, he lists it out. He said, God's done this, God's done that. He starts with God's actions towards Abraham, and then he goes through their entire history to the point where they entered the promised land from kind of start to finish, all the way up to where David is. And it's by going through the entire narrative in this way, by remembering it, that David has really worked up the gumption and the unction to just pursue God with everything he has. This remembrance has produced this, these first four verses in David's life. Now, there's a lot of components of remembrance that are captured here in these you know, 30, 30 or so verses, um, but I want to point to three big ones that, that, uh, that are very clear that we can hold on to so that we might be able to even just apply this into our own life in very, very practical ways. Okay? They're um, recounting, reframing, and redeeming, recounting, reframing, and redeeming. They all start with R. That's not some preacher trick. It just happened, okay? Uh, even when Dave sent out the email this week, Dave sent out the email, he used some other R words to describe what's going on in here. That's great, you know? The, the, Psalm 105 is all about some R words, and we're going to go through recounting, reframing, and redeeming, okay? Because um, David's recounting the actions of God. He's reframing historical actions, and he's redeeming the darkest, darkest moments of Israel's history here in Psalm 105. So recounting, that's really quite straightforward. David kind of recollects and writes down everything that he knows that God has done. Uh, it says he rebuked kings on Abraham's behalf. Um, so in order to, to know what he's talking about, you have to read the book of Genesis. And, and when you read the book of Genesis, you discover something very disturbing that's there. Genesis is not a book for anybody for the, the light of heart. There's a lot of disturbing things in this book. Uh, one of which is kind of Abraham, the, the founder and, and the person that God wanted to start uh, his people off with, had this uh, habit of telling kings that his wife was his sister. Um, he, apparently Sarah was a very, very beautiful woman and David knew that, that her beauty would inspire a desire in these kings that would be so great that they would kill her husband to make her their wife. And so he said, hey, I'm her brother. And so they took her to be their wife and um, God rebuked them for it. Plagues came, this happened in Egypt once. Pharaoh did it and plagues came upon the Pharaoh and his household. And it forced him to ask, what's going on here? And it was revealed to him, oh my gosh, this is Abraham's wife. He gave him his wife back. Abraham went on. Then it happens again many, many years later to this back up kind of closer to the land of Canaan where modern day Israel is and this king named Abimelech. Abraham's like, oh, she's my sister. 
Abimelech takes her to be his, his wife, and then God sends a dream to, to this king and says, hey, you better give Abraham back his wife and ask him to pray for you or I'm going to kill you and your family. Whoa. God rebuked kings on behalf of this vulnerable, wandering couple. They didn't even have kids yet. He rebuked kings on their behalf. See, these are all the things that God has done to powerfully act on behalf of his people. And he goes through Israelite history from Abraham to Joseph in Egypt, to their time in Egypt, to the Exodus, to the wilderness wandering all the way up to coming into the promised land to say, God has looked out for this vulnerable, wandering people for hundreds and hundreds of years at this point. He's remembering it. He's recounting it. Let's move on to reframing. He doesn't just recount these events, he reframes a lot of these events as well. And he does it by taking a page out of the Old Testament narrative of, of the guy who did it best. Um, in verse 17, he says, he sent Joseph ahead of them. He sent Joseph ahead of them. And then unpacked at length uh, Joseph's story. This is Joseph, who is Jacob's favorite son. Jacob would give him um, all these special gifts, including this multicolored coat that we read about in the book of Genesis. The only problem is Jacob had 10 older brothers who became very jealous. They sell him into slavery. Slavery caravan goes down to Egypt. He gets sold as a slave there. Eventually, that's not not his lowest point. Eventually, he ends up in prison until a certain series of circumstances happens where he gets the opportunity to translate and, and interpret Pharaoh's dream for him, which he does through God's power. and He becomes second in command of all of Egypt. Second in command. And now his brothers, they eventually went to Egypt themselves to buy food because there's a famine in the land. And David said that God sent Joseph down to Egypt ahead of them, though. The only problem is, it doesn't say that anywhere in the narrative. (laughs) His ten brothers sold him into slavery. If anybody's sending him, it's them. But David has in mind this statement that Joseph says. Uh, This is probably one of the greatest statements of, of mercy and grace in the whole Bible. And his ten brothers come to him, and he has all the power, and his brothers are, again, representing vulnerable Israel. He looks at them and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He reframes it. He reframes it. And David, too, is confident enough to say, God's the one that sent him down there, not his brothers. He's reframing history. You see, reframing is looking at a set of historical events that that look like they're being done by human actors and saying, no, God was there acting through that. God was actually the central director there. God was the one behind the, street, but behind the scenes pulling the strings, orchestrating, telling people where to go, what to do, when to do them, so that his people would be in the right place at the right time to experience his mercy and his grace. That's reframing. All of us have a story that goes like that if you're a Christian. God brought us here and there to hear this word or that word, to encounter him and his revelation in such a way that we might hear his gospel. That's reframing. Bending all things. God's bending all of the things for his glory and the good of his people. That's how we say it. And then thirdly, remembrance includes redemption. Now, when certain events get reframed, they also become redeemed. 
redeemed means to buy something back. So, so when you say Jesus Christ redeemed you on the cross, it, it means that he bought you back from the enemy. Okay, so that's what Paul reminds the Corinthian church at one point. He says, hey guys, you guys were bought at a price. He's talking about their redemption, and the price was the death of Christ. So similarly, what remembrance does is it takes past events that were lost, and it buys them back. It, it takes that which is most dark, and it makes it light. David does this a couple of times in these verses, um, but we just worked through Exodus, so, so let's take a look at that one. It's in verse 23, if you're reading along. 23. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. They became more powerful than the Egyptians. And then he turned, that is, God turned their hearts to hate his people, the Egyptians' hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Now, that's uncomfortable. We leaned into it when we walked through the book of Exodus, where it's very clear that God is turning the Egyptians against the Israelites. Why would he do this? Well, they were in the land of Goshen, and what we find in the end of the book of Genesis is that this land that they were in there in Egypt, the land of Goshen, was very fruitful. And, and the Israelites had been greatly favored by Pharaoh. After all, Joseph saved Egypt from certain famine. That means that they had little thought of ever leaving Egypt. They were, they, were, they were content, they were happy to stay there and just, just ride, ride out their great privileged position in Egypt. And so the first thing to be done to the Israelites to get them to the promised land was to make them unhappy in the unpromised but fruitful land. Make them uncomfortable. To make them anxious to get out of Egypt because God would not drag them kicking and screaming out of Egypt. That's not how God works. He doesn't, grab, he doesn't drag people kicking and screaming places. Definitely. God doesn't work against people's consent. He, he wanted to bring them out in a way that they would be willing to come out. That they would be willing to come out of Egypt and into the promised land in joy and delight, rejoicing to get away from Egypt. And there were a couple times when it was kind of on the fence. You know, they thought, looks like they still want to stay in slavery in Egypt. Or they're in the wilderness. Oh, they want to go back to slavery in Egypt, you know? So David tells us God turned the hearts of the Egyptians against them so that they would be uncomfortable, so they would not look, or so that they would look for his redemption. Now, in reality, they were in need of redemption the entire time. They were slaves to the desires and wants of Pharaoh, even though it was going well for them. Regardless of how hard their labor was, but, but God caused the Egyptians to strip them of that privileged position so that they would look for his redemption and jump at it when the opportunity presented itself. God made things dark so that they would reach out for his light. And, and, and friends, after a year and a half of this, I, I don't know what your darkness is right now. I don't know what, what bleak circumstances you're in right now. I, I don't know what, what privileges or fruitfulness have been stripped away from you, but, but perhaps God is the one doing it. Perhaps God is the one who's put it in your life so that you might see his redemption that you might see his promise of light and life for the beauty that it is. See, God makes things dark so that his redemption might be seen for the full hope that it carries and that it has within it. For its true vibrancy as the solution that all other solutions can't really be. 
So what we find here is God, God brings people into dark places so they can reach out for his light. So, so in remembrance, we, we can work from recollection to reframing in the hope that we might trust in God's redemption and identify those moments. That's really what this is all about. So, so like I said, we want to make this sermon series very applicable, very simple to go home and actually tips, t- take real concrete steps towards engaging God again. And, and so what I want to suggest is you can use this, this psalm as a guide. As a guide. But if you're anything like me, <laughs> you're going to want to start with your own story as you continue on from this psalm. But do you know what? If we actually think about what David's done here, is he's listed a series of, of 25 things. There's 25 verbs that he says, God did this, God did that, God did this, God did that. All of them happened before he was even born. And so we need to start with the things that God has done before we were even around. And I want to suggest that you can start from 2,000 years ago. So I kind of wrote this out as, as I prepared this week, to, just as a, con, a continuation of David's remembrance to, to jump to Christ and keep going. Just to model for you something that you might be able to write, I was mimicking, I was like, you know, this Hebrew parallelism is really fun. Maybe I'll just mimic what the, the Hebrews are doing here. You know, so uh, d- don't be too critical of my poetry, okay? Uh, but I just wanted to write it out to give you guys a little sample of something that you could write out and individualize it for yourself so that you could experience God's presence. So this is what I wrote. I said, then God came in the man Jesus Christ. He stood in the presence of his people He taught them how to live. He showed us what a life completely obedient to God looked like. God crucified him for our sake. He crushed him so that we might find life. Um, Do you see how I'm keeping God as the subject, just like David did here? God is, is the actor here. God raised him from the grave. He pulled him out of darkness and into life. He sent his Holy Spirit to be with his disciples and gave them the counselor to be with them all their days. God preached his gospel through the apostles, and people bowed before him. He revealed the resurrected Christ, and they repented. God worked through them to bring light to the world. He brought life and truth to those who had none. For thousands of years, God used one generation to pass along his gospel to the next. He didn't let it skip over a single one. Now I'll transition to make it more personal. God called my parents, and they answered. He sought them out, and they drew close to him. And he caused his message of love to come to me. He uncovered the truth of his Messiah in my sight. My parents became Christians when I was just a kid, and I started going to church when I was about five years old. He took my questions, and he answered them. This is wrestling in college. He turned my darkness into light. He took my pains and explained them. He picked me up and carried me. He set my feet upon a rock. He supplied me with a hope that exceeded all others. He transformed my loneliness into abundance. He planted me among his people forever. He gave me a great wife and friend. He supplied me with an encourager, a lover. What more? He bestowed upon me children of flesh and spirit, those who call me father and brother. You see how remembrance, when you lean into it, those first four verses, praise be to God, thanks be to God, let's go, I think is what the kids are saying nowadays. Let's go is how you feel when you lean into remembrance. I'm amped up, let's go. Saw it in the Olympics all the time, you know? Let's go, they'd scream. But you recount the past, 
You reframe it as God's work, and you discover the redemption that's present in your life. And by so doing, you discover even more and more nuances that are there, that that you missed, that you may have even skipped over when you lived it, but you see the nuances as they're there. And so you can do this at any point in your life, but warning, it's going to jumpstart you to action. You're going to do something. It's going to thrust you into action in the world. You're going to be thankful. You're going to proclaim his works to the world. You're going to boast in who he is. As a result, your heart's going to rejoice. You're going to encourage your Christian friends to rejoice even in the midst of their hard circumstances because robust remembrance is directly linked to action. And we see it right here in the psalm. We see it right here in the psalm. Let's get back to the scripture to talk about that. Because on either side of all of David's remembrance is the word remembrance. It's actually specifically used again. But David's not remembering. God is. God is remembering. So back up to verse 7. Back up to verse 7. David says, He is the Lord our God. This is before he starts really getting into his remembering. He says, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. God remembered his promise. Skip down to verse 42. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant, So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil. You see, all of God's actions towards his people are preceded by his remembrance of them. God's actions are rooted in remembering the promise that he had made, that, 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 that he made. And it makes sense of all of these strange things that pop up in the Old Testament scriptures where God is remembering things. God remembered Noah, it says, and caused the floodwaters to recede. And God remembered Rachel and opened up her womb. Or or when Israel was groaning underneath their slavery in Egypt, it says, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. And then the next story is he appeared to Moses in the burning bush to begin his deliverance of them. There are countless more. What's going on in all these instances? Has this all-knowing God actually forgot things and he needs people to nag him? Like, I tell Lucy to clean her room so she can get ice cream. She has to remember, hey, Dad, you told me we get ice cream. We have to go do that. Is that how it works? Well, no, that's that's a very two-dimensional view of remembrance. But the fuller definition that we just unpacked is actually attached to this Hebrew word, zakar. Zakar. That's the word that's used for, for remember. And it means to bring someone to mind and then act on that person's behalf. Bring someone to mind and then act on that person's behalf. You cannot find an instance in the Old Testament where zakar is used of someone and acting on that person's behalf isn't attached to it. You, you can't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. No one remembers and does nothing in the Old Testament, you could say like that. Zakar always is attached to action. In fact, in the Psalms, you'll see them saying, God, remember me in my affliction. What are they saying there? They're not saying, God, think of me. No, they're asking God to act. They're begging him for deliverance. 
You see, remembrance is to a relationship with God as gas is to a car. You can say you have a car. It might even look like a really nice car, but without gas, it's not going to go anywhere. You can say you have a relationship with God. It might even look really nice and shiny from the outside, but without remembrance, it's all just a facade. Without remembrance, it's actually uh, not going to go anywhere. It's not actually going to go and do anything in the world. It's not actually full of real thankfulness. It's not full of real disciples. It's not full of real uh, evangelism or real encouragement of the body, real joy, real pursuit of God. It's just a fixture without remembrance. Good for looking at and and sitting in, but but not much else. And, And that's exactly why the psalm closes with verse 45. Um, I'm actually going to put it up in the screen in the the Christian Standard Bible version um, because that version actually really captures really well what I think David's doing with it. It separates it out as its own verse, as a conclusion, puts like a stanza break there, and it words it like this. It says, all this happened, all the remembrance, all the things that God has done, so that they, that's, that's the Hebrews, might keep his, God's statutes and obey his instructions. Hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. You see, remembrance is all about remembering what God has said, all that he has done, reframing it, discovering the redemption in it so that we might trust him. So that we might trust him, not blindly obey, but look into the past and say, this is a being that I can trust that, that, that whose word he's always faithful to, who always acts on everything that he has said. And it gives us the confidence to walk through life knowing that he's in control. And by his grace, he'll turn all the darkness around us into light. But it also puts us in a rightful, humble place as well, knowing that God does invite us to trust us and holds us accountable to listen to him. And and so the the true things which truly paralyze us in our walk with God, which I would say is our anxiety and our complacency, they're really dealt with by leaning into this incredible God through this act of remembrance, which is to say recounting what he's done, reframing the events of our lives to see him as the main actor and discover the immense amount of redemption that he's working all through it. And so Psalm 105 is an invitation to do nothing short of remember. It's, it's not a save the date. Think that wedding invitation. Uh, don't just put it in a drawer and forget to RSVP. Brides hate that. They hate that. Chasing down your, your RSVP. They don't like it. No, accept that invitation, set aside our phone, turn off the TV, set aside some time to engage this life-galvanizing life like and transforming remembrance. It'll take you places that are exciting. You'll be excited about your faith. It won't be boring. It's one of the most beautiful things that, that the psalm tells us we can always come back to and always start with. And so today I urge all of us, to take some time this week and lean into remembrance. Would you pray with me?